We just call it all Tanya. That's what happens. Okay. So, we are now going to be dealing with fear. That's what we're going to get into. The last little bit. We are on page 84, the last column of the chapter. Now, I want to put some things in context. Um, first of all, everything is by Ashkocha Pratis. And um, someone was, was telling me something right before I left. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That like, is a great way to start off the class. So I'm going to use the, what he just told me. So, as some of you may have heard, um, in the United Kingdom, they had a coronation. Um, not this past Shabbos, Shabbos before that. Um, and the chief rabbi attended. Which was somewhat controversial since the coronation was in a church and it is a church service. Okay. Um, and there's arguments for it, there's arguments against. But, so I was, so one of the uh, students in the men's program, who was from uh, England, was telling me that, that um, he was very against because there's like a basic thing that the Jews in the UK know, even if they're not religious, which is like the, the, the one thing you never do is go into a church. That's like, if you're a Jew, you don't go into a church. You may not keep Shabbos, you may not fast in your kippah, you don't go into a church. And then the chief rabbi going to church is like, throws everyone like, what's going on? And I thought that's an interesting way to start. Like, where does this idea, like, you don't go into a church come from? Like, why is that this notion like, no? Um, and this touches on what the Alter Rebbe is going to be dealing with here, which is that we see when we talk about Mesir Snefesh, martyrdom, that Jews would give up their lives, but they wouldn't give up their lives not to worship idols because they weren't actually being forced to like genuinely worship idols, right? It's not like, it's not like, ooh, should I genuinely accept Christianity, right? And, 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 and you know, adopt that perspective in my life and my, the, way I, the way I submit to the, you know, divine power above. Or die. Like, that was never the choice. The choice is, like, do I let them sprinkle the water or kiss the cross and die, right? You can have very technical, like, superficial behaviors, right? You know, if you're talking about in, in pagan times, do I bow down? Do I slaughter the animal, right? Do I, do I, do I, you know, do whatever the ritual is? Right? Everyone familiar with the story of Khan and her seven sons? Anyone not familiar? Okay, so I don't have to tell the story. But those story of Khan and the seven sons... Is, is this idea that, you know, it, even though it's not really intended, it's not, you don't really mean it, right? You're willing to die. And so there's an interesting question. Granted that we say the mysterious Nefesh wakes up so as not to deny God, but it's not really the issue at hand. Right? In most cases of martyrdom, it's not about denying God. It's about playing along superficially. So you have this question, why is the self-sacrifice being, being triggered, right? Why is the Chachma waking up? Right? So you, would, you could understand that maybe the Chachma would wake up if the person was like genuinely contemplating converting or genuinely contemplating adopting a pagan worldview, right? And then something inside of them would like, you know, disquiet them and be roar to the surface, right? But that's not the vast majority of cases of martyrdom, right? And, that's, and you see that kind of a more subtle thing, right? This idea that a person, who's just telling me that, I'm, I'm taking his word for it, just because I think it illustrates it, that a person can be completely secular in how they live their life, right? But the, the last vestiges of what does it mean to be a Jew is that you just don't go into a church, right? Like, no, we don't do that kind of thing. Or as the joke goes, that the, the, the Jewish 
family sends their kid to the Catholic school because it's got the best education in town. And the kid can come. And they're not. They're not religious. They don't really believe in God or anything. You've heard this joke before, right? So the, the kid comes home and he starts talking about the father, the son, the ghost, the whole thing. And, and his father gets very, says, look, there's only one God and that's the one we don't believe in. <laughs> so like, where, where does this, like, again, it's not a matter of like conflicting convictions. Like we actually had a student in the men's program who had grown up Catholic um, and discovered that he was Jewish. And like he really had conflicts. Like, like, he was into yeshiva, and, like, he snuck out of yeshiva Christmas Eve to go to midnight mass, because, like, like, he was, like, really in conflict, like, you know, it was, like, an inner war going on, okay? But that's not the vast majority of cases, and yet the martyrdom kicks in, right? The chachma wakes up, so what's going on, okay? So up until now, all we explain is how chachma makes martyrdom really possible, right? That drive to be subsumed within Hashem, right? Um, that comes from the awareness of when that awareness wakes up, because right, the Chachma awareness is asleep, even though the drive, the passion of Chachma is in, in exile, when that awareness of wakes up, right, all of the, all of the, the klipa, all of the um, ungodly aspects of a person, very also melt away, or I use the example of like wax melting away. So there's nothing holding the person back. We get that, but the question is why? I mean, it's not a big deal. You're just talking about doing something superficial you don't even really mean. So, that's where the Alter Rebbe is kind of coming from. And he says like this, The force of the divine light of the ain'ts of blessed is he that is clothed in the soul's chachma is great and powerful enough to banish or pelis or achra and the klipa so that they could not touch even its garments, namely thought, speech, and act the faith in the one God. Okay. In other words, that the, 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 when chachma <coughs> wakes up, the, the, the sense of Hashem within the chachma is so powerful it goes throughout the entirety of the soul all the way to the garments. Now, in order to understand this, we first have to talk about the garments of the soul, which we all learned in chapter four. Did we learn chapter four together? No, so what do we have to do? We're not gonna learn all of chapter four right now. That would not be an effective thing. But we do need to understand the idea of garments from chapter four, okay? So in general, what you should do is you should think of the soul, okay, as having Three basic layers. Okay, now, I recognize that we have two souls, right? And you have a body. Don't worry about that right now. Just think of the soul as having three layers. Okay? There's the inner core. Okay? In the, in, in the language of the Tanya, we're going to call that the Chachma. Okay? Um, we may also call it other terms. We may call it... Um, the etzem, the essence of the soul. We may call it the pintal yid in Yiddish, the, like the inner little Jewish spark. Um, Kabbalistically, we might call it yechida. I don't really care what we call it, right? but there's that core thing in the soul. And what's key about this is the core of the soul is unchanging. Good? Then you have the level of the soul, which we're going to call the koiches. Can you pass the tissues, please? The faculties. And I know this is going to be confusing. The first faculty is Chachma. We just wait, Chachma is the... Okay. But here we're talking about Chachma. Remember, we first had the class on Chachma in chapter 18. We spoke about how there was differences in Chachma chapter 3 and chapter 18. This is Chachma as it's a cognitive faculty, right? The ability to become aware of things beyond yourself, um, how we develop insight, right? So the highest thing would be the faculty of Chachma. The lowest thing <laughs> would be the faculty 
of Malchus, okay, um, and I'm going to be intentionally vague as to what that is because I don't want to get sidetracked, okay, but these faculties, they are unlike that first layer in that they can change, and they do change, and they fluctuate. So if we think about what is the difference between a child and an adult, you know, not, phys- not physiologically, right, the difference is in their, their psychology, right, how they, how they experience and make sense of themselves and reality, right? So that second layer is that, and that's broadly what we call the seichel, the intellect, and the midas, the emotions, a broad categorization of those 10 faculties. And those are considered to be the soul itself, not the deepest essence of the soul, but the soul itself, okay? So if I want to know something about your soul, I could talk about the essence of your soul, but that's boring, because like, there's nothing unique about the essence of your soul. The essence of your soul is this absolute, you know, connection to Hashem that, that we're all the same in. But the more interesting stuff is the way in which your soul perceives the greatness of Hashem, feels towards Hashem, etc., etc., etc. And that's, and, and cultivating and developing that was like the first section of time, the first part of time, you know, the first 17 chapters. Then the third layer called the garments. Now, why is the third layer of the soul called garments? So garments have a few characteristics. Number one, you can change your garments at will. Right? I can take off the jacket, I can put on the jacket. Can you change how you perceive Hashem or how you feel about Hashem at will? Do you, do you have passionate love for Hashem right now? Can you just decide that you're going to have passionate love for Hashem and then while that happens? Do you, do you, do you truly grasp the presence of God and everything? Can you just decide that now you've grasped it? Right. See how this works? You, like, you can do stuff to get to those points, right? But, but you don't have direct volitional control. Whereas you do have direct volitional control over other parts of yourself, and those parts are called thought, speech, and action. You can just decide to make a bracha. You can just decide not to speak Lashon Hara. You can just decide to light a Shabbos candle, right? You can even decide to stop thinking thoughts that are, you're forbidden from thinking. You have to replace them with other thoughts, but you can do that, right? Um, if you do not have direct volitional control over your thought, speech, and action, you fit into one of three categories. Um, a child, um, a person who has been isolated from society so they've never developed mentally, or a person who's suffering from serious mental illness. But if you are an adult human being who has developed within society and has a normal, you know, within the normal range of mental functioning, you have the ability to volitionally control your behavior and your speech, and even your thoughts. Okay. Um, and I think it's easy, but you can. Now, you go a step further, why is it that the deeper parts of yourself, the koiches, right, the, the faculties of the soul, which are much more you, you have less control over directly, and the parts that are really more external, right, you have much more control over it. Does this question make sense? I would think the more something is part of me, the more I have control over it. And here we see the reverse of the case. And, and actually, if you think about it, it, it makes a certain kind of sense. If I'm going to change how I feel, what has to change? I have to change. If I'm going to change how I understand something, if I have to change what's real to me, I'm going to have to change. I have to become somebody different. Not at the core of my essence, but on, on, I have to, 
Whereas if I'm changing my behavior, I'm changing what I'm speaking about, or I'm changing the thoughts that I'm thinking, I can remain the same person. Okay. Um, you're familiar with this idea that you ask a person, saying, do you want to, like, Chavez, can you want to put on tefillin? And they say, well, I'm not religious. So that's okay, you can still do it. <laughs> Okay, we're not asking you to be religious. We're not asking you to develop a, a philosophy or a mindset, right? Just asking you, like, you know, take the candles, light them, say the words, do it at this time. It's not so complicated, right? You don't have to become a different person. Okay? And, and, and so the idea is that because it's so external to you, it doesn't involve any internal change. That's what makes it, you can just decide it should be different. The more something is internal, actually the less, the, so the koiches are, you can change, but it's hard work, and then you go all the way to the core of you, that you can really don't change at all, ever. Okay? So now, if I were to think about it, though, that means that, in a sense, the, what I do is the, is, is the least pertinent, the least relevant to myself. Explain to you what I mean. There's an interesting statement of our sages which says that thoughts of sin are worse than sin. Does that make sense? Someone's nodding their head yes, some people nodding their head no. Thoughts of sin are worse than the actual sin. So someone who thinks that doesn't make sense, tell me why it doesn't make sense. People ask me to say they shook their heads no. So I know there are people. So why doesn't it make sense? Because you really hear that even though like thoughts are important, but your actions are like, you know. At the end, Hashem wants your action too. But the thought needs to be. One second, one second, one second. So you're just saying action is more important because God thinks it's more important. You can control your actions. You can control your thoughts too. Should we we do a test? Sure. What? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's very, very simple. Have you ever studied for a topic you weren't particularly interested in? Yeah? What were you doing then? About stuff that you'd prefer not to be thinking about, but you knew you had to, right? So that's called controlling your thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now. You just have, it has to be important enough to you, right? No, do you know how to drive? It's like, do you know how to drive? Do you know how to drive? Yeah. Have you ever driven in when there's, when there's really bad weather? Yeah. What happens to your thoughts when you're driving in really bad weather? Is it the same as when you're driving when there's like on a route that you're familiar with? Mm-hmm. And there's good weather? Usually then your thoughts are off somewhere else and you don't even paying attention to what you're doing, right? But when there's really bad weather, your thoughts, all the inner dialogue in your head is all centered around... Yeah, don't crash what's going on right now, right? So you control your thoughts. Controlling your thoughts, like everything else, is hard. No, you control all of them. Like you control what you do with your thoughts, but you don't control what, like... Is it the whole thing? You don't control your initial thoughts, but you could control if you, like, keep it or what you do with it? That's debatable. And in Tanya, it's debatable. The thing is like this. The more you are engaged in something, the more you can even control what enters your head. Yes. So there is a stage at which when you are not deeply engaged in something that you don't control what enters your, your mind initially. But if you really focus and engage in things all the time, then that, even that won't happen. Um, but yeah.
control our thoughts. I'm still going to be, I'm not thinking about sinning as worse than sin. One second. Wow. I want to understand the argument. What makes this... What makes the sin worse than the thought? You're saying, well, because God cares about what you do. So it's just what God cares about. It's just arbitrarily God's like, well, you know, if God had cared more about the other thing, then it would be reversed. That's you I can't mean, that's, that, that is ultimately true, but that's not much of a... I, I, I think I have a sneaky suspicion that it's not really out of a great deference to divine will that that's why you're saying that. I think on even not knowing what it says in Tanya that the most important thing is actually, I think you know, people kind of have an intuitive sense that like, the actual sin is somehow worse. So let's get it. Why, why is that? Because you can't control the sin, but you can control your thoughts. You control the sin. But can, no, didn't you say, though, that like, the, the point in which like, you actually do the sin, you, you aren't anymore in control? Because, like, what it's, once you decide to, to, do, to sin, like, it's too late? Yeah, but that's, all, that, that, that's like a... No. I, 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 I said that when a person makes a decision to sin... Between that and actually carrying it out, they may not have the ability to stop themselves. But that's all considered part of action. Okay. To me, it doesn't seem like the thought doesn't seem worse because I've heard that Hashem doesn't judge a person for the sin. Like, even if they're planning to do the sin, at the point they actually sin, then they're actually. Well, it depends if they're a Jew or a Gentile, actually. It does? Yeah. Does that not apply to Jews? That applies to Jews, it doesn't apply to Gentiles. After all, what did Haman do? Think about it. He planned. He all he did is plan. He didn't do it. He didn't harm a fly. He didn't hurt anybody. Think about it. The whole perm story, Haman did nothing wrong. He put them all in distress. Because he made a plan. And he said what he was gonna do. It's like, That's uh, distressing. Well, he <laughs> so he so he deserves to die for that? Yes. Really? That's and the straightforward reading of the story is that Haman was killed. Haman was killed for intending to kill the Jewish people, not for actually killing anybody. Never actually harming anybody. That's a straightforward reading of the poem story. Um, by the way, it emphasized over and over again that it was Haman's thought. Machshevas Haman, Machshevas Haman, thought of Haman. What? Planning is thinking. He didn't actually do anything. So there's a, there's a, there's a difference there. There's a, there's a difference between Jews and non-Jews. Why that is, but I, I, I'm going to push you again. Why? So it's just because Hashem punishes you or doesn't punish you, that's what makes the difference? Probably Hashem's judgment. Is Hashem's judgment what makes it worse, or is it worse and that's why Hashem judges the person more harshly? Which one? Um, Hashem's judgment makes the sin like, worse. No. no? That, because the judgment is based on the fact that it's worse, which ultimately comes down to because God thinks it's worse. But again, we have some intuitive sense of what makes it worse. You see, like a sin like, affects the world at large. Like... A sin affects the world. Yeah, that was like a very simple example. Okay, there's a statistic I heard from a psychologist that 90% of men have thought of killing somebody in their life. And he, the psychologist said, from this, we, from this we learn that 10% of men are liars. Men are extremely aggressive. You should know that men have very, very strong internal senses of aggression. Extremely strong internal senses of aggression. Yeah. But most men don't kill anybody. Right. And I think we all just like, 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 you know, Killing people is really bad, right? Thinking of killing people is not nearly as bad because people don't die from that, right? Go down a step. How about stealing? Thinking of stealing is bad. But when you actually steal, that's worse because now people are harmed, right? There's a reality to actual sinning, right? Affects the world, right? Make sense? Now, we could say, okay, that's because that's what God ultimately cares about. But, but there is a, like an innate sense of that. 
Okay. So then how could the sages have possibly said that the, the thoughts of sin are worse than the sin? It's more right? Because in the layer of garments, thought is closer to the soul than speech and action. In fact, thought is the, thought is the layer of the garment that actually touches the soul directly. So here's the thing. If you were to sin with minimal thought, the damage you have done in reality may be great, but the damage to your soul might not be so great. Conversely, if you spend a lot of time fantasizing about sinning and thinking about sinning and never act on it and never speak about it, the effect on the world is minimal, but the effect on your soul is very deep. I'll give you a very interesting example of this. Okay. What is the worst crime a person could possibly commit? Killing. Killing. Murder. Yeah. Men. <laughs> what? At all men. No, men, men have, like, there are, like, you know, men have very, very strong aggression. That's the thing. There are. There are. But here's the interesting thing. Um, and this is, this is just an observation. Do you know what kind of crime is the least likely to be um, committed again? even if the person is let out of jail? Murder. Murder. Murderers are least likely to reoffend. Do you know why? The overall majority of murders happen because things got out of hand. In other words, the difference between, you know, your person, regular person and the murderer is usually not really much of a difference other than things got out of hand. Okay, um, which is not justifying an excuse, and 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 it's a really, really, really bad. And, and so when the person like this really bad thing, they feel really bad and they're really careful and they don't want to do it again. And you do have a small subsection of murderers who like are, are, are like immoral people, but but the vast majority of people, you know, they were um, things got out of hand. Maybe there was also alcohol involved, and and you know, but there wasn't a lot of like internal. Um, you know, <clears throat> thinking about it and how I'm going to do it and dwelling on it. And so, like, they're like a... Re- I'm, 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 I, I, it's weird to say this, but, like, they're a relatively normal, decent person who, like, we all have dark sides and the dark side came out and they did something really, really, really bad. And in terms of the effect on the world and people's lives, right, it's horrific, right? But, you know, they're, 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 often there's a, there's a thing that most people that commit murder... Um, in, in these categories, often don't remember that they did it. They suffer from a post-murder amnesia. It's that traumatic for them because they're not like these immoral people at their core. So there's even an example of like, it's like the reality of what the person did is very, 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 very bad. Now, you converse, you contrast this with there's other kinds of criminals who like really spend a lot of time thinking about um, harm that they want to do to other people. And that is very corrosive to them. They become an immoral person. And they may not even necessarily do things that are that um, as bad as murdering a person, but those people, it's very, very hard for them to ever change. Not saying it's possible, it's very, very hard for them to change. Why? Because, because since thought has that kind of that first layer that's a direct contact with the soul, it's actually thought that starts to reshape ourselves. Right, when we want to change ourselves, what do we have to do? 
We think about things. And through thinking, we slowly mold ourselves into something different. So a person spends all the time fantasizing about stealing, what are they becoming? A thief. A thief. They're becoming in their... If a person steals, what happens? They stole. I mean, they're a thief in the legal sense, but at their core, they're a person who, who, who will all have a selfish side, and they were impulsive, and they acted, and they're wrong, and they're guilty, and they deserve to they, you know, be punished appropriately, blah, 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 but not necessarily are they, are they a thief. You see the difference? So the sages were making reference to the effect on the soul rather than the reality of the sin. Now, you could flip that around, right? And say, okay, but if I'm not focused so much on my, how it affects me, but how it affects reality, well, like, you know, and if I don't ever act on my thoughts and ever articulate my thoughts, nobody really knows about my thoughts, right? So you see, so, so that, how thought is kind of the, 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 the boundary right after the faculties. It's, 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 it's a garment. You can change your thoughts. But it, because it, there's, it's the first garment, it kind of has that feedback back onto the faculties of the soul. From there, you can understand that when you move down that, that layer down, speech and action, it's even more remote, right? Which is why people say, oh, I, said, I didn't mean to say that. Like, don't, don't, don't take it to, I didn't mean to say it. And, and for argument's sake, a lot of times that's true. A lot of times people didn't mean to say something. That, that had they spent a, f- a little bit more time thinking, and not necessarily thinking of the consequence of saying it, even thinking, do they really want to say it? Okay, but by the way, when you get married, um, sometimes people get upset and they say things when they're upset. Um, why do they say those things when they're upset? Because they were thinking. What? They weren't thinking. Because if they're thinking, there's a very simple thought that most of us have, which is, I don't want to hurt the people I care about. Like, I really don't want to hurt the people that I care about. And so a thought that pops into your head that articulated would hurt somebody, you actually probably don't want to say. Now, what happens when a person feels really angry? What happens to that kind of level of thinking about your own self and what you really want, and so that kind of self-awareness? It goes away. And so the minute the thought pops into your head, comes out, and then it's not like, I, it's not like, oh, it's not like, oh, I shouldn't have said that because like the thief was like, I shouldn't have stolen because I didn't want to get caught. It's like, I didn't even really want to do it. And, and the thing is like, there's this interesting boundary thing when people are, are like upset. And this happens when in marriage where like you can be in that, you're almost thinking clearly. So you almost think I don't want to say this. And you have to like calm yourself down and get to the point, yeah, I really don't want to say, I really don't want to hurt this person. Because people do get, you do feel very tense. Okay. Um, it, it, it's not like, oh, I don't want to do it because then there'll be negative consequences afterwards. Right? Most of us do have a sense of care for the people that are important to us. Right? Um, and then you talk about behaviors. A lot of behaviors are just like, people didn't think it through. They really didn't think it through what they were doing, what the effect of it would be. Right? Who would be harmed by it, right? And if they had, a lot of times people would have acted differently. So if you isolate speech from thought, and all the more so you isolate action from thought, it becomes so not reflective of the person. It maybe becomes reflective of the fact the person was in a state of low self-control, low self-awareness, maybe preoccupied with himself and not attentive to others, those types of things. But it doesn't reflect this on some sort of like, you know, genuine 
um, acceptance of it's okay to hurt people, it's okay to do wrong things. You see what I'm saying? Like, so now, taking that, like, what's the big deal? Bow down to the idol, move on. It's like, it's, you're, just, you're just bowing. You don't really believe it. You're not even thinking it's true. You're not trying to become an idolater, right? It's so remote. Yeah? Okay. How do you measure the power of something is how far it reaches. That's one of the ways of measuring it, right? So, um, the interesting thing with little kids is you ask them, um, what's brighter, a flashlight or the moon? Little Little kids will often say a flashlight. Why? Because they're talking about the light as they experience it. But when you realize how far away the moon is, the fact that the reaches, reaches and, and it, we live in cities, so we have this issue, but the difference between a moonlit night and non-moonlight is a huge difference from so far away, right? And you talk about stars, right? You can see that the stars are even brighter than the moon, right? They seem much dimmer, but the fact the light reaches us is because of how bright that light is. So the idea that Alter was saying is, this fact that the Chachmah's awareness of Hashem, the, 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 light of, the light of Hashem that resides in Chachmah, is so powerful, so forceful, it radiates, radiates out from the core of the soul all the way to the periphery. What's the periphery? The garments. And within the garments itself, action. Action devoid of any genuine meaning. Just action. That even that most superficial, which is not reflective of you at all, it radiates even there. And that would make sense. Why? Because since it's the light of Hashem and Hashem is unlimited, why would it stop at any particular point? Hey, remember we, have, we spoke about before how, how this, the Chachma is always connecting to this idea of the absoluteness of Hashem? If that absolute is the case, then it radiates even all the way to the level of the garments, even to within the most superficial garment action. Again, not that action is unimportant, but as it reflects on the person doing it, action on its own says very little about a person. In fact, many times when we're upset with people for what they've done, it, the, if you pay attention to the thoughts in your head, it's not so much what they did, but the motives and thoughts that you assume are behind it. For instance, if someone steps on your toe, why do you get upset? Because you think they did it. You did it on purpose. You're a little more mature. You don't think they did it on purpose. <laughs> but why are you upset with them? No, it's not hurt. They weren't thinking. They weren't thinking. You should have been more considerate. You were like, you know, you see, well, why don't you watch where you're going, right? Okay. Then you turn around and you see the person's blind. You're not upset at them anymore. I mean, it still hurts, right? Like, what do you want? They're blind. And your foot happened to be in like, I don't know, it could happen. Like you're on a busy train. The person gets on the train. They're blind, right? The cane can't tell them that your foot is right there. And they step down on your foot. What, like... You, you wouldn't be angry with them, right? And most people would not be angry with them at that moment, right? Because it's a lot to do with what you thought was going on behind the, just the realm of action. Okay? But when it comes to the Chachman, the Chachman doesn't make these distinctions. Okay? So it's like, this, it's like this nuclear bomb going off that like nothing can stand in its way. But it doesn't get weaker as it radiates out. It has the, because, it's, because it's absolute, because it's infinite, it has the same force on the most superficial layer of the soul the garments and the realm of action in particular as it does at its core. In other words, it enables one to withstand the test of self-sacrifice to the extent of even refusing to do some single act that is contrary to faith in the one God, for example, to bow to an idol even without acknowledging it in his heart 
at all, or its utter or false notion, heaven forbid, regarding the unity of God, be it merely by way of rendering lip service only while the heart remains perfect in belief in God. Right? That the person is not going to just do the ritual. They're not going to just make, profess, you know, against... The, when, the, when, the, when the Greeks, um, in the Hanukkah story, one of the things that they did is that they wanted the Jews to write on the horns of their oxen that we have no part of the God of Israel. And Jews died for that. I'm not writing on my ox. What's the big deal? Write it on your ox. No one's asking you to like believe. No one's asking you to go to the to go to the pagan temple and worship, right? Just write that you and the God of Israel have nothing to do with each other. Just write it on the corner of your ox so like when your ox down the street, people are like, oh that guy doesn't believe in God. And they wouldn't do it. That's that absoluteness. Now that's extreme, right? Let's put this in. Let's put this in, in, in a slightly different context for a moment. The Rebbe, this is this is I, 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 this is the same idea, but in, in further extreme. The Rebbe lived in France when the Nazis, um, when 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 the when the French government fell to the Nazis, um, he fled and eventually went into Vichy France, which was cooperating with the Nazis. Um, and I don't remember, I, I think it was in Vichy, France, but I, I don't remember exactly, if maybe it was in Paris, but there was a point at which that they started doing a um, census of local population, you know, who's Jewish, who's not Jewish. So they went door to door asking people what religion they were. And at that point, the Rebbe was not home, and the Rebbe's wife was home, the Rebbe's son was home, and knocked on the door, and the Rebbe'son, she looked like a you know, very well-mannered, cultured European woman, um, you can't tell looking at her what religion she was. And they asked her what religion she was. She didn't want to lie, but you know, she understood this was not a thing. And so she said, Orthodox. Now, Orthodox could be Jewish, and Orthodox could be Christian, right? <laughs> Goes both ways, right? There's, there's a, you know. So they wrote down Orthodox. The Rebbe got home, and the Rebbe was not happy with this idea that there would be a registry somewhere that would imply that um, he was not Jewish. So he went down to, either was the, um, Gestapo or whatever office was working as a liaison for the Gestapo to make sure that Schneerson at this and this address is registered as Jewish. That, that's extreme, right? Why would you do that? It's so super, I mean, that's not even action. That's just what's written in someone else's ledger. Right? But it's the same, I'm using that just to illustrate like that, if you think about it, that's what we're talking about, right? It's not you. It's not what you believe. It's not what you feel. It's not what you're into, right? It's something superficial. So why? Is that because you really love God? Is love the right way of thinking about that? Think about that kind of extreme behavior and ask yourself, is love the kind of thing that motivates that kind of behavior? If I really, really, really love someone, right? Then that's going to get me to be unwilling to pay lip service to something else that's contrary to that for the purpose of saving my life. Like, think about this. I'm gonna imagine you, you, you have a child and you love your child. Right? Person says, we're going to kill you, God forbid, unless you say this child isn't your child. 
Would you be able to say the child isn't your child? All I have to do is say it, right? For fake. For fake. You don't have to really mean it, right? Could you do that? Most people probably do that. So, like, like love doesn't seemingly have that kind of... Uh... So when we left off the last class, we talked about fear, right? And so there are different levels of fear. So we need to come back and understand the difference between love and fear. Love, fundamentally, is about... a person's um, being more full, being more whole. So if you think about it, if you love somebody and they're more actually part of your life, your life feels fuller. If you love someone and they are absent, your life feels emptier. Make sense? Now, love can have many, many forms, many facets, right? But that's the core. Love is somehow a sense that, that the, that, that, the totality of my being really entails and involves the other one. Now, we, we, the love that we spoke about previously in the beginning of chapter 19 is actually kind of unique love because it's not that so much that Hashem is part of my life, but rather that you could be able to some soon that Hashem that you lose your existence entirely. But again, there's this notion of like the fulfillment of your being is found in the other, in the other one, the one you love. Fear is very different. Okay. Fear... Okay, so let's go back to what we spoke about before, like there's fear of punishment. Now, fear of punishment is, is actual fear, but it's not the fear Chassid speaks about. In fear of punishment, what is happening? You are not going to behave in certain ways because, why? Someone could hurt you, right? In this case, you know, the case we're talking about was God. God could hurt you if you sin, therefore you're not going to sin. So fear is an experience of smallness relative to some kind of greatness. In this case, vulnerability to power. That's what fear of punishment is. I am vulnerable and, there, and God is powerful and therefore I'm afraid of him. Make sense? But all fear has this sense that like, of being inhibited. There is something, there is something bigger. There's something that I, that I, 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 I can't, I can't go past this line. Okay. Now, there's many different types of fear. I said before that there's many different types of fear in Chassidus. Okay, and we're going to talk about the fear that's specifically here. But fear doesn't feel fulfilling. Feel fears that you like, you feel very inhibited. I can't. Right? I'm afraid. There's a danger. Okay. Now, let's talk about COVID. I'm going to say something very controversial, okay? Any health precaution has trade-offs. Yes? Yeah. And therefore, there is always a question of whether a health precaution or intervention is warranted because everything has trade-offs, right? So now, let us assume that we have two people or two communities who had different approaches to how cautious to be during COVID. And let us assume for a moment, as was often the case, that it's not because of a lack of information. How do you explain that? How do you explain why this group of people, you know, they will only meet outside masks and maintain six feet apart from each other, and this group of people, you know, not. 
So I would say there, 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 there's, there's, there's two things you could say. And I want to, one is that you could talk about fears, and one is you could talk about things that um, they value. In other words, if somebody values something very much, right, and the cost is something they're not so afraid of, they're willing to do it, okay? Or if you're afraid of two things, but one fear is much greater, right? So, so what ends up happening is you put that balance in different places, right? So this is, this is not really a matter of like objective reality. Does this make sense? Okay, um, and, and I'm not using this example to, to um, I'm using example because people feel very strongly about it. Um, not because I want to say a particular opinion about it. That feeling very strongly has a lot to do with what people value and what people are afraid of. Okay? Someone who is very afraid of getting sick, right? that fear might get them to avoid things where the statistical likelihood of getting sick is almost irrelevant. And that in any other area of life, they would ignore it. But for whatever reason, the fear of getting sick is something they feel very acutely, right? And someone else, the fear of getting sick is not so much. And they say, well, I mean, it's not, not any more likely than this, this, that, and the other thing. And I, I take risks all the time for these things that are important to me. So I'm willing to do that. And I don't see why I shouldn't be able to do that, right? See the difference? Now, who's to say who's right? Oh. What? No one. No one? Well, okay. So, I, mean, I, would, I would make the following suggestion. It's very, very hard for you to come externally and just say this person is right or this person is wrong. But it is also the case that we would say that there's clearly a right and wrong. For instance, I think most of us would say that a person, would, a person who would um, do something that is very, very risky um, just because they enjoy the thrill of it, right? There's a point at which we would say that's wrong, right? And we actually even start labeling that as some kind of like mental defect if it's repeated behavior, right? And then we have the reverse, that people that don't do normal function because they're concerned about unlikely things and that fear is very strong, we also do that, right? I mean, so we do have some sense that as you go to further extremes in these things, like somehow it's off, right? We have a sense in other words that has to be proportional or justified. And maybe we don't have a good method of figuring out exactly where that is, but that doesn't mean it's up to personal, you know, whim, right? So you see someone who locks themselves in their house, right? Because they're afraid of, you know, uh, of, of, of something. And you feel like, and at a certain point, almost everyone says, well, that's not proportional. That's like, that's a sign of something's off, right? So what we do have is we have a sense is that this inhibiting sense has to be proportional to the likelihood and seriousness of what it is. Now, and we recognize we may not assess that exactly the same way, but there is a kind of truth of the matter and the further away you get from it, the less legitimate we take your approach to be. Make sense? Right. Now, what would be the worst thing for a person to say um, you know, we'll use the example of that that child isn't my child. Like, what's so bad about saying that? I mean, it's not a nice thing to say, right? But is it such a bad thing? Not such a bad thing, right? 
And therefore, people might say things that they really aren't comfortable saying and really would not rather not say in order to preserve their life or the lives of their loved ones. There was a story of a chassid um, who was arrested for spreading Judaism in Russia together with his son. Um, and I don't remember the exact details, but the, the Soviet Union had a policy that they wouldn't um, execute you until they had tried you and convicted you, and they didn't want to try and convict you until you had confessed. It was like, they had, they, there were these pretenses of like due process or something. But so they had to like, you know, get you to confess under torture and duress and stuff. And then you would, you would stand in the court and admit your, your guilt and then they would, okay. So, um, for whatever reason, like it was very important for them, like that, that the man who was running the, the underground network and his son who was helping them, that they, be acknowledge, that they acknowledge that they were in a father-son relation. It was like part of the whole like thing they wanted to present to the court. And um, they wanted the son to admit that that's the father. And so what they did is they beat the father in the presence of the son. They said, well, stop doing it as soon as you tell us that he's your father. But now, the minute you say that he's your father, you are playing into their hands. They're looking at it like, I think it's a crazy situation to be in, right? Okay. Nope. So, but he knows that if I, if I, if I, if I give into the, if I give in, if I give into this torture, then I'm going to play into their hands. And, and what, what ended up happening is, if I remember this correctly, is he kept insisting it's not his father, it's not his father, and he saw his father basically be beaten close to death. They, ended up, they shot him afterwards, and he denied it being his father, and, but because it wasn't his father, so then they didn't have a case against him, and so he was able to... These extreme things, right? And yet, all of a sudden comes to God. No, you can't even say anything. You can't even, you can't even pretend. There's something, there, there's something very, very weird going on here. And this is what the author means, is that there's a fear that the godly soul has that is so absolute and so extreme that when that chachma, the fear that comes out of this chachma comes out, what, it radiates all the way to the most periphery of the soul action, and it doesn't let the person participate in something which is idolatrous, even though the person doesn't believe, because the soul is afraid. Not because the soul's in love, but because the soul is afraid. is afraid. That's a good question. What is the soul so afraid of? Mm. So. But I thought. One second. So, the simple thing that you said of being disconnected is correct. But if I want to read the text all the way to the end of the chapter, and let's see if he uses the word disconnected. Okay. And see, and, and, and you already tell that he's not gonna use the word disconnected, he's use something slightly different. This is called fear that is contained in love. The natural love of the divine soul is found in all Jews, the intrinsic desire and will which is to be attached to its origin and source in the light of the ain't of blessed be he. What Hebrew word did that have? Yeah. It is instinct, it instinctively recoils in fear and dread up from touching even the fringe of the impurity of idolatry, heaven forbid which denies faith in one God, even where such concept involves only its outer garments, namely speech and act, without any faith whatsoever in the heart. What is the soul afraid of? Does it say disconnect? What does it say? What is it afraid of? Touching. Touching. Impurity. Impurity. So I'm going to point out two words. It doesn't say disconnect. 
And it doesn't say sin, does it? It's afraid of touching impurity. Can you give me an example of what it's like to fear touching impurity? In like, on, on like a basic psychological level, not religious level? What? Like a germaphobe. Right? That somehow if I come into contact with this, like that's... Like the mere contact with this is in and of itself something that I cannot... I can't handle. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't tolerate. There's a zero tolerance for contact. It doesn't say that the soul is afraid of sinning against God. It doesn't say it's afraid of disconnection from Hashem. It's afraid of there's this thing called impurity, which we're going to talk about what it is, the impurity of idolatry. And the soul is so afraid of it that even the mere contact with it is something the soul has a zero tolerance for. So now what happens if a person bows down to an idol? Or a person accepts the baptismal water, a person kisses the cross, what happened? Did they start becoming an idolater? Did they forsake their belief in God? Did they separate themselves from Hashem? Again, assuming they did this all under extreme duress. Absolutely not. But what did they do? They, the most outer part of their soul touched the impurity of idolatry. And that, that, like, that, that, that's something the soul just cannot handle. It cannot, it can't do that. In that sense, I can't, I, 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 I can't, no matter, no matter what the cost, I, just, I, I, I can't go that far. That's someone paralyzed by fear, right? We're talking about, in other words, when a person experiences martyrdom, are they experiencing what the altar would call a tremendous love for Hashem? Or are they paralyzed by fear? Right? The sense that I, I, I can't, I can't do that. So there's, a, there's a lot of stuff I want to flesh out about this. Um, the thing I want to start with is, why does, wh- why does the Alter Rebbe talk about being, being paralyzed by fear rather than the love? Because love doesn't have this quality. If you love someone, right, love is ultimately about fulfillment. Love is ultimately about, about meeting some deep drive with inside of yourself. And so if it, you're, all you're experiencing is love, right? You can, you can have some level of superficial like, contact with things that are opposing, some level of something that goes against, because it's, it's, it's not, love, in a certain sense, love is an enhancing thing in life. Think about it like this, a person who doesn't, a person who doesn't feel love, could they get along in life? I mean, it's a shallow life. It's a very dull life, right? I wouldn't necessarily want to live that life, but you could live your life, right? A person has no fear. What would happen? They'd die. They'd die. Unless there's people to take care of them. They'd die. They'll just do things without any sense of how dangerous it is. And There's something more fundamental, right? So when a person, when a person feels a love... And first and feels a desire, and first and feels a yearning, they're looking for some kind of fulfillment. When a person feels a fear, that fear stops them. And when we're talking about martyrdom, in most cases, it's not like, oh, I, I, I love Hashem so much and I'm so close to Him, and this would jeopardize my relationship. That's not really the case. 
In fact, now he's not really, it's not the case at all. There have, I mentioned before, there have been Jews who have not, like, withstood the test of martyrdom. What is the Jewish approach? There was a Jew who was threatened with death or whatever it is, and um, they didn't convert to Islam, to Christianity, whatever it is. And then they, they went, they did it. They, they, and then they eventually get out from under the persecution. They want to come back to the community. What is the attitude we have in Halacha regarding that? What? Well, first off, let's say, do we accept them back in the community? Yes or no? What do you think? Yes. Number two, do we view them as somebody who was disconnected from Hashem and rejected Hashem and now is done tshuva? No. Do we, do we, we, we don't, we, 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 view, we view them with a, with a sense of, you know, of, of, of compassion, right? And there's letters, there's letters, the Rambam, Rashi, about these are real things. People want about, we should ostracize these people, these people are heretics, no, 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 these people, these people are victims. Now, did they do something wrong? They did something wrong, right? Because, the, because there's a, there's a, there's a, they, 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 they should have been, they should have had such an aversion to, 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 to converting to another religion, to participating in those things, that, that, they, that they martyred themselves instead. That's what should have happened. Okay. But they didn't. But they wonder when something, but they didn't, it doesn't mean they necessarily rejected Hashem. It doesn't mean that deep down in the heart of hearts they were disconnected from Hashem. It's not true. They did something wrong. They compromise when they shouldn't have. There's an interesting halacha. Okay? If a person is threatened with death or idolatry, the halacha is they have to choose death, right? What if they choose to worship idols? The punishment for idolatry is death. Do we then punish them for committing idolatry afterwards? No. Do you know why? Because they didn't under duress. They didn't really... They, they, um, deep down, they weren't really disconnected from Hashem. I mean, the whole, con- you know, the whole concept that we have of like the, 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 the used to call them Moranos. Now they say that's not politically correct, but when I grew up, they're still calling them Moranos. The Jews that, that outwardly accepted Christianity but tended to try to keep a strong sense of Jewish, right? They did something very wrong, but they're also extremely heroic. They're, 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 and that's, right? it's not the person's choosing to worship us. It's actually interesting. If you worship idols in order to save your life, not under duress, like the only way you could heal yourself was by worshiping idols or something, then, then we say that's already something different. But when there's an external threat, there's external duress, and you don't stand up to the pressure, whatever reason, you know, you suppress the chachma within, and okay. There's a sense that the person, there's a sense that the person has, has compromised, they shouldn't have compromised, but they didn't really disconnect from Hashem. Well, then that means that the fear is not about the disconnect from Hashem. The fear is there's something that is like, intolerable about idolatry itself, that the soul just, if the soul would be aware that this is idolatry, it could not come into contact with it. In this sense, a germaphobe is a much better example of what we're describing than someone who doesn't want to do something that would hurt somebody that they care about. Like, I have a great relationship with my wife, and I love her very deeply. I would never want to do something that would hurt her because that would create a separation between us. Okay, that's a fear, but that's not the kind of fear we're describing here, right? Because that kind of fear, you compromise all the time when there's other overriding considerations. We all do things that hurt people we care about because the hurt is minor. The reason, to ju- the reason for doing it may be a very important issue. And so, okay, 
You know, we don't do it casually or callously. We can overcome that. When a, but but this notion like this is something I can't I can't touch this. It it it, it, it there's there's a phobia of it. Now, do people have the? You know, I'd say germaphobes are are not a common thing, right? Would I be correct? Most people are not like germaphobes. Okay. What's something that people have a kind of that kind of relationship with that is pretty natural for everybody? Germs are very abstract. This is why germaphobes are not natural. Smell? Right. When you move, move a step away from the germs to the actual, when there's death, in like actual experience, so things that are death, so for instance, rotting flesh, spoiled food, right? What happens? <laughs> like you're like on a physiological level, your body's like, I can't come into contact with that. That is death. Right? That's right. Like, yeah. Like most people, like if you were to, t- if you were to like, if you were to, if you were to like touch some like thing, not realizing it was like some like rotting meat, like, even if you know knowledge of germs, like, like in, in, even, like, in, you know, you know pre-industrial like you know industrial societies, if they touch, like, rotting flesh, they would go wash themselves off. There's a, it's disgusting. It's, there's this sense that you're coming, you can't come into contact with death. Now, what do we previously say that, that idolatry is? If God is, God and, and what, is, what is receptive to Hashem, Chachma, is life, Avaidazara is death. So what is the tomb of Avaidazara? Is the sense of death. And so the soul experiences anything of idolatry as like coming into contact with death. And that you can take that as like some deep metaphysical thing, but you can think physiologically, we have a sense like that. When things are, right, things like are, are very, you know, the, the, the spoiling, the rotting, certain smells, we recoil. It makes sense. Is that anything to do with the quality of your relationship with, with with how do you feel about your life? I love living life. Like you might you love living life. You don't love living life. Like 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 how you feel about living life has nothing to do with this. There's this kind of like this this gut level drive to avoid these things which viscerally evoke in us a sense of death. Right. So what happens to the godly soul when something? seems to be containing the death, what he calls the tumma, the impurity of idolatry, the contaminant of idolatry. It recoils. It, recoils. It, 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 it can't. It can't. Right? And I don't care how distant it is. It's... It, 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 right? There's like this... There's, there's, there's this absolute, you know... There's this, there's this like almost, you know... Uh, 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 a gag, this this sense of like being paralyzed. You can't push yourself push yourself forward. Um, you know, sometimes the milk spoils. You ever had this experience where the milk spoils, and you made the mistake of smelling it, and then you need like a tremendous amount of self control to like keep holding the milk to get it to the trash, because like once you've smelled the milk, like your body's like like drop it and run, <laughs> and like you have to like use conscious control to like not do it. Right. That's not the same thing as I'm afraid of a disconnect in my relationship. Right? It's, <laughs> no, the reason why I'm telling you this is because one of the key things Alter was trying to talk about, we're talking about 
like the love was a built-in drive and natural instinct of the soul. Again, natural, we had that whole discussion about, right? The fear is the same type of thing. It's not, oh, I value my relationship with Hashem so much. It's like, there is a part of us that experiences idolatry as, as, as the, way, the way we physiologically experience things that are associated with death like, and recoils. And, but again, because we're talking about with it in the godly soul and Chachma, there's an absoluteness to it. So once that Chachma kicks in, right, there's, no, there's nothing that is going to override that. And the soul will just recoil from that. And so if the choice is death or touching idolatry, what's the soul going to do? It'll submit to death. And here's the thing. Is the soul seeking to return to God at that point? Think about that. Is the soul at the moment of martyrdom seeking to return to God at that point? No. No. This is not an expression of the desire of the soul to be subsumed in God. This is an expression of the soul's inability to tolerate the death of idolatry. Right? Again, think about it like that sense like you smell something that is just rancid and you just want to vomit and run away from it and like be as far away from that as possible, right? Is that because you feel so passionate about life? It's not how you feel so passionate about life. You just can't tolerate that, 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 that sense of death, even just the smell of it, even just like touching it. Does it make sense? Okay. So it's nothing to do with sin, nothing even to do with relationship, really. It's not what saying. There's a part of us. And again, back, you know, in the good old days, I mean that sarcastically, back when, you know, martyrdom was things that Jewish communities had, you know, first or second-hand experiences of all the time, right? Like that, that exists in you. Okay, now what are you going to do about that? Now, why is this called the love, the fear that's included in love? Well, because the love and the fear are coming from the same place, right? What is it we said about Chachma? Chachma is this awareness of Hashem and that absoluteness, right? So on the one hand, that means there's a drive to be completely subsumed within Hashem, right? On the other hand, that means that there's zero ability to be, zero, zero tolerance for the, 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 the death, the, the impurity, the, the repulsiveness of idolatry. It's just one is seeking something out and one is unable to tolerate the opposite. But they really stem from the same core thing, which is a sense of the absoluteness of Hashem that is, that is built in fundamentally each and every Jew. Which means you really have an interesting possibility here. This hidden love, how many ways could you bring it out? Two. Two. You could bring it out as an experience of love or you could bring it out as fear. What's happening in martyrdom? Fear. It's really fear. When is it love? How do you bring this out in a way of love? Mitzvahs. What? Mitzvahs. Nope. Okay. 
So in the introduction to chapter 2 of Tanya, the Altar says there's two types of love. One type of love we're commanded towards, and the other type of love is the natural yearning of the soul for the Creator, for God. And then he says, when does that natural yearning come out? When a person prevails over the physicality of the body, subdues it and subjugates it, then the love of God will flare and blaze with a flame which ascends of its own accord and will rejoice and exult in its maker and will delight in him with wondrous bliss. Those who merit this state are called tzaddikim. What would it be like to experience the hidden love inside every Jew? What would that make you? It's a tzaddik. tzaddik. That would make you a tzaddik. Now, to be fair, there is a discussion of chassidus. There is another way it can be manifest, which is in shuva. Sometimes the person is inspired to do shuva from this place. But that's very different, because then it's, it's not really integrated into the life of the person. But, so, it's interesting. The, the, the person who's undergoing martyrdom, right, are they experiencing the same thing as the tzaddik? What they're experiencing is rooted in the same truth. But the tzaddik is experiencing what? The the the. the, the, the the yearning and the, and, and, and the fulfillment of losing oneself in Hashem. And what is the person in martyrdom experiencing? Fear. The fear, the dread, the abhorrence of coming into contact with the death that is idolatry. The death that is a denial of God. Even though they're not denying God. So they're very different ex- experiences, right? How is it included in the love? Okay, so right now I gave a very, very simple answer, which is that they both stem from the same place. But then you can ask the question, well, then why do we call this overall love and then treat the fear as just the facet, right? They said, so this, the previous Rebbe says in uh, a talk of his, why don't we call it the hidden fear and say the love is included, right? Why do we frame it in terms of the love? So we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, I want to talk about why at the end of the day, even though the experience of the person undergoing martyrdom is really fundamentally a fear experience, we still call it and we still frame it in terms of overall the love of the Chachma, of the godly soul, rather than the fear of the Chachma. Okay. Um, now, I'm sure many of us have heard, had ex- heard stories or maybe have experienced things where we feel like there are certain lines about being Jewish we just can't cross. And the, when you think about those lines, they're not very rational why that line would exist. So what does that mean? But it feels like like you just can't do that. What, what's happening there? That's something that the person has a sense of the death, the tuma, the impurity of idolatry. In. And so there's a sense that like, <clears throat> you can't do that. And that doesn't feel like you're in love with God, does it? It doesn't feel like you have this deep yearning. It just feels like there's something that you can't be part of. Is that still Mesiris Nefesh? So when a person experiences that, they're experiencing a kind of subtle form of Mesiris Nefesh. Um, you know, and people sometimes make very radical choices in life. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a... Uh, um, somebody in France who was engaged to a non-Jewish woman and they went apartment shopping 
because you know once you get married you have to have an apartment together and they went to check out an apartment um, him and her his parents were like traditional like like they were Sephardic traditional they were not very happy about this um, her parents were like whatever um, they were fine with it they went to check out this apartment in Paris and he got into the apartment and he feels this incredible urge just like to like break up with her like he can't stand her anymore and he's and he starts telling her like i can't stand you and like i don't know what to do with you or like i can't believe we've gotten this far and he just starts berating her like 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 all this like negativity and intolerance just comes out and like she's offended her parents are offended the wedding's off and like and he doesn't know what came over him um, and so the parents are like, I don't know, maybe like something they put in touch with the rabbi, whatever, and he ends up coming to Israel and he moves to Tzfas and he, he you know, gets involved in Breslov. Anyway, at one point he's in Tzfas, he's a Breslov guy. One point he's in Tzfas, he, he, he ends up, I don't know exactly, it was being played on the streets or went to some Chabad show, but they played like a video of the rabbi about the rabbi's early life. And they had um, one of the things, that they had a picture of the street where the rabbi lived in Paris. And he had gone to see the Rebbe's old apartment. <laughs> and so being in that holy place made his soul more sensitive and just like, came out. So it's an interesting story. So there are things that can happen that can trigger the soul, right? You know, that wasn't like dying for God, but it's, it's the same dynamic. But again, the Alter Rebbe is not going to say we're trying to trigger that experience all the time. That's not really a feasible way to live life. He wants to do something slightly different. Okay, so tomorrow I'm going to talk about why it's called love, and then we take if you're included, rather than just saying they're two equal facets of the same truth that come out in different circumstances. Um, and then we'll be done, I think, with chapter 19. For the most part. So what we're going to do next.